0: It's our turn to eat is a phrase that I used to hear a lot when I was in Kenya. And I find it really ironic now because I see I see it coming up in, in uh, Kenyan newspaper articles all the time. And they say, Michaela Wrong's phrase, it's our turn to eat. And I sort of feel, you know, talk about appropriation. You know, it's not my phrase. <laughs> I didn't invent it. I just used it because I heard it so often. And it seemed to me to encapsulate the form that corruption took in, in not only Kenya, but large swathes of Africa.
1: Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. In this episode, Michaela Rong speaks to Sam Power about her book, It's Our Turn to Eat, named by The Guardian in 2023 as the top book about corruption. The book tells the story of the Kenyan campaigner John Gafongo, who we're very pleased to interview for our last episode, so do have a listen to that as well. Here Michaela talks about some of the key themes in her book and her other writing on like the complicity of international donors in upholding corrupt regimes and the role journalists have in holding power to account. She also talks about her career as a writer and some of the dilemmas faced by outsiders in writing about corruption issues in other countries. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. First question I wanted to ask: How you got into you know your work as an investigative journalist? How you got into particularly that area of of Africa, of Kenya and and Rwanda and and, and the other places that you've written about? How, how you got into it, and how how you've continued to to work in this field um, for anyone that's interested in going into either journalism or what that is currently yeah just a bit a bit of your backstory, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm a, I, I came up a fairly classic way through Reuters news agency uh, and worked quite a bit in Europe, in France and in Italy before I started being sent to Africa and uh, was then subsequently poached by the Financial Times and became their Africa correspondent. So this specialism slowly developed, I think. A lot of journalists end up feeling a little bit frustrated by doing news coverage, even if, you know, at the Financial Times, I was allowed to do a bit of analysis and interpretation and features. Uh, There comes a stage where you you just sort of you're watching stories unfolding in front of you and thinking, I'd like to to delve into that a little further, delve into the themes. Uh, explore thoughts that have been bubbling away at the back of my mind as I have seen certain things taking shape in front of me. So I reached that stage and and uh, left full time journalism and wrote my first book, which was in the footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, which was based on watching the end of the Mobutu President Mobutu's era in um, in DRC, Zaire as it was then, and then decided to write a book about Eritrea because I thought it was sort of diametrically opposed, and I had been there and found it absolutely. Charming and a very cheerful, exciting moment in its history, where it was a newly liberated country and there was a sense of dynamism and purpose in the air, and everyone was coming back and investing in the country. And very, very quickly, instead, that went sour. And by the time I was writing my book, I was actually writing about a whole process um, that had had gone wrong and had um, had had sort of, you know, a, a dictatorship that was taking root instead of what I thought I was going to be writing about, which was a young country finding its way and finding its feet uh, after a, a devastating liberation struggle. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the stories I've covered have taken me by surprise while I've been researching them. And I've learned a lot as a result that the. the The um, Kenya story was my third book and I'd actually been intending to write a novel um, set in Nairobi, set in a newsroom and I had arranged to spend some time researching um, at the standard newspaper which was enjoying a big you know input of money and staff and was being relaunched as a paper and they agreed to take me on as a sub-editor on their desk and I uh, had explained to them that I wanted to do that, but I was going to be using it as a way of picking up experiences and colour because I wanted to write a, a novel set on a Kenyan newspaper. While I was doing that, I was watching what was unfolding in front of me in Kenya. And uh, I had been there when Waikibaki took the presidency and had appointed John Gitongo as his anti-corruption czar, as they called it. and I And all that was going wrong, was going sour. So um, at a certain stage when I was back in London, there was a knock on my door and um, he, um, John Githongo turned up with all his luggage, having called me, I think it was just maybe even a couple of hours earlier saying he was in town in London And could he just come round because um, he couldn't really explain, but he needed somewhere to sort of put his bags down. Uh, And that was the start of the story because he was on the run, having um, exposed a corruption scandal um, and been threatened with death in Kenya. So uh, I took him in and as we were talking over the following weeks, because he, um, he stayed with me but told me not to tell anyone that he was staying with me, I realised that what he was telling me was a fantastically interesting story and a story that told me and anyone else a great deal about modern Kenya and the kind of challenges facing people like him, younger African players who are trying to change things and and challenge the old ways. And I I sort of realised, forget the novel, (laughs) this is the story, and asked him if that was going to be okay, if he was going to be a, a willing participants and collaborate and grant me the interviews. And he said yes. So for the next few years, I I just plunged into that story as deeply as possible. It was a slightly unnerving period because he was in exile. Um, He eventually found a birth with St. Anthony's College in, in Oxford. And so he was busy exposing this massive corruption scandal. It was a military procurement scandal and amassing all the evidence that he had fled the country with and compiling a dossier in which he summarized all his findings chronologically and I was going to Kenya and trying to get relevant interviews and so I felt much more exposed than he did because I was in Kenya and he was in London and I you know if you had wanted to make sure the story never came out people would have targeted me while I was in Kenya and he was in a much safer place. So those were tense times, but um, but we both came through them okay. Eventually, he he did expose uh, the Anglo Leasing scam, as it was called, and I wrote a lot about that. Uh, and then eventually, you know, that was the basis for my for my book. It's our turn to eat. It's our turn to eat is the phrase that I used to hear a lot when I was in Kenya, and I find it really ironic now because um, I see I see it coming up in in uh, Kenyan newspaper articles all the time. And they say, Michaela Wrong's phrase, it's our turn to eat. And I sort of feel, you know, talk about appropriation. You know, it's not my phrase. <laughs> I didn't invent it. I just used it because I heard it so often. And it seemed to me to encapsulate the form that corruption took in, in not only Kenya, but large swathes of Africa. I mean, in uh, West Africa, they say, it's our turn to chop, i.e. to eat. Um, that's quite a common phrase in Nigeria, and you can hear it's our turn to eat being used in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, in Tanzania. And it really just encapsulated what I was writing the book about, which is that you know when you have a particular group in a position of power, um, and in Kenya, those groups are ethnically defined they don't have to be in other countries they're defined by religion, you know uh, religious affin- uh, affinity or, or 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 by origin you know uh, geographical place. But in Kenya, they are ethnically divided those groups they are ethnically defined that um, that that group will then sort of regard its time and power as a chance to fill its pockets. And to uh, funnel all sorts of state resources and investment and goodies into uh, into its into its coffers, uh, and and it just summarised that it's our turn to eat. Summarised that whole approach, which of course ends up um, crippling a country because that kind of greed just gets out of control. Uh, and when each regime adopts that philosophy, that then you know the state finances end up uh, being bankrupted.
1: And presumably, it's a really I can see why, it, or not necessarily why it's caught on, but why I suppose it's attributed to you because it's a really useful, I suppose, just way of thinking about thinking about power and the way that power manifests. But do do you think there's an extent to which it sort of becomes a almost a vicious cycle because if 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 one person starts eating and then you suddenly get in power. Then it would it would seem a bit it it would seem a bit silly not to do it if that's just if that's just the norm and I'm thinking that you so say so your your well, well, at least your second book and perhaps it's a through line of of some of your of, of your work is that great feelings of optimism so the start of it, its our turn tweet apart from John Gathanga turning up at your doorstep is the optimism of of, of the new regime and, and this idea that it was you know a rainbow coalition but that then suddenly turned sour or was it at least exactly the same as as everybody else. It was just a different form of eating. And is it that philosophy that perhaps, you know, you have all this optimism that is unfounded or is that just, I suppose, w- 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 what you end up writing about? You, f- you find these things that are very, that, that look like something very interesting is going to happen, but then it perhaps doesn't quite turn out in the way that it, you might expect it to. The optimism turns out to be misfounded.
0: Yeah, I am disappointed. Optimism is definitely a theme in my books. Um, it's not deliberate. It's not like I went looking for it. As I said, when I wrote my book about Eritrea, uh, I, I deliberately chose that subject because I sort of thought I couldn't think of a country that was a, more of a contrast to Mobutu Zaire, the book I had written my first book about, as Eritrea in the 1990s, quite soon after liberation. You know, and as the whole country, you know, the diaspora going back and investing in the place. And, you know, it seemed to be an extremely accountable, highly motivated, disciplined, you know, incredibly articulate government running the place. Um, So the I didn't set out to write a story about dashed hopes, but it did end up being that Uh, with with the, the Kenya book, the John Githongo book, as it's often described. I I guess um, I had been watching what was going on with John long enough to know that, yes, this time it was going to be a story about dashed hopes. But I I think I would say that's just a human theme uh, in that, um, you know, every new government, uh, every new administration, every revolutionary movement that takes over a country always comes in with high hopes. And there's always, you know, an intellectual element to their approach and then the pragmatic element and then there's usually military and security element and uh, so often what you see in these scenarios is that the intellectuals are the first ones to be um, to be alienated <laughs> and rendered irrelevant uh, and then uh, the military and security angles take over.
1: So the, the thing that I was going to say about I suppose that the the not necessarily the inevitability of um of disappointment, although you know probably is an element oh, of it. We'd, we'd have to come across as terrible pessimists, but you know th- everyone's always more excited at the start of a regime than as it settles in, be it from democracy right through to an autocracy. Mm. I suppose. At what point? In terms of the the the, the Kibaki regime, because you do sort of mm. talk about yeah. how exciting it was at the start. At what point did you start thinking, okay, this isn't this isn't quite as 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 good as it was promised?
0: To be honest, I I can't remember the moment where I began to look at it and think, oh, that's going sour. But but the reason for that is I was working on something else. I was working on the Eritrea book. And I had been there when Kibaki won the elections in 2002. I'd been at the inauguration ceremony. I had covered it as a journalist. I had listened to John as he, you know, in a rather excited, febrile state of mind, said he'd been asked to play the role of Permanent Secretary for Ethics and Corruption and had accepted the job. And I remember thinking that could be a poison chalice (laughs) in Kenya, the country that I know. And then I had sort of um, been busy focusing on other things, writing about Eritrea, going to Eritrea. So I hadn't really followed it um, and I had heard sort of rumours about sort of contracts and a passport scam and then there was a frigate and it really hadn't coalesced or crystallised until that day when John appeared in London and sort of said, can I come and stay and please don't tell anyone? And then I was like, yeah, sure. OK. I I think I just had a very vague impression that he was going to he was getting into trouble uh, and that hadn't really surprised me.
1: Um on that day, my understanding is something that's quite fascinating for me. And I suppose this is a, more of a personal thing is that I, my understanding is that you didn't know John Tonga all that well, actually. And that's sort of why he called you. So that must have been quite a strange. I suppose as a journalist, you're sort of open to all, all kinds of things, but it must have been quite a strange, just call to get. And then, you know, person to just come into your life for a little bit, considering, you know, it's just a it obviously you knew him, but you know, it wasn't like somebody that you would and my understanding is you just sort of said in passing, if you ever need to stay, here's my number.
0: Yeah, I um, had I had definitely said to him on one of our meetings, yeah, if you ever need a place to stay, I I'm based in London, you know, feel free. But you know, I often do have a lot of people coming to stay at my place in London because um, so many Africans do pass through London. Uh, and it it wasn't, it hadn't been said with any great import. Uh, and um yeah, the fact that I didn't know John that well was one of the reasons why he had picked me, because um he knew that as soon as he left the hotel with all his luggage, the intelligence, Kenyan intelligence, would start trying to work out where he'd gone and who he was staying with. And I wasn't gonna be on that list. You know, I, I I just wasn't an obvious candidate. So he was somebody I had known him as a journalist first. I'd got to know him uh, when I was based working as the Financial Times correspondent in Nairobi. He wrote some very good opinion columns that were extremely clear, well thought out. And I sort of thought this is an independent thinker, young man saying interesting things about his own society, really putting his finger on some of the problems. Then he had joined uh, Transparency International, the anti-corruption group, and had done good work there. And it was a time when Transparency International were kind of spreading their wings. His father was intimately involved with the establishment of Transparency International. His father was an accountant, a very high ranking accountant in the Kenyan system. So John had a sort of affinity with, with Transparency International. So yeah, so we had got to know each other that way. And he was just one of many bright young Kenyans that you used to see and bump into uh, at, at events. Uh, but we weren't particularly close friends. And it, I do find it quite ironic because of course, when my book came out, of course, there were immediately all these accusations that I had been his lover. And, uh, you know, that, that it was slightly difficult because there were also all these smears that he was a homosexual, who had been having an affair with the ambassador, the British ambassador of the day. So it was kind of like the people who were trying to smear him had to decide which one of those two things they were gonna go for. And uh, now I've written a, a book about um, Rwanda and uh, the protagonist is the late Patrick Karagaya, the former head of intelligence. And once again, the accusation is that I was his lover. And you kind of think this is so basic it's so misogynistic it's just kind of like how many people am I supposed to have had sexual relations with in the course of my career might it just be that we've had a professional relationship or or maybe a friendship uh but it's always that automatic you know look for the look for the dirt and and then publish it
1: and so what you do is uncover whether it be in the new book in Rwanda or it's our turn to eat is either uncover or <clears throat> or report on corruption and or let's call it well uh, I was going to say misbehavior but that's re- really really underselling it in terms of in terms of what people do so obviously there is pushback in terms of in terms of smears at, at the very least and how how do you and you've you've already talked in this conversation about you know going to kenya after after john john staying with you and how that was pretty pretty scary so how do you actually deal with that uh, you know on a on a very functional level i suppose as as both a journalist and a, a human being frankly
0: yeah um i think it's been a, um a series of slow steps in that i was never a journalist who wanted to be the same or Hirsch of africa i I don't particularly enjoy being controversial. I don't particularly enjoy, I hate going onto Twitter, for example, and having spats with people. I do like having a private life. I, I don't kind of get stuck in and enjoy the sort of rough and tumble. But you, I think there's just been a series of stories I've written, which sometimes the level to which they're regarded as controversial has surprised me. But then you sort of think, well, I suppose, yeah, obviously that was going to ruffle some feathers. And then you just go further and further down that line until, you know, with my Rwanda book, I very much knew that I was ruffling feathers and that I was taking on some very established, firm opinions and some very, uh, you know, intimidating people. I think when I published the Kenya book, I was genuinely quite surprised how many people were upset by it and the reaction on the ground. So, for example, it was impossible to openly buy it in Kenya. It hadn't been um, banned, but a lot of the booksellers in, in Nairobi, well, all of them, decided they weren't going to openly stock it. They sold it under the counter. And I found that really surprising. I mean, I, I, I didn't think, I thought Kenya was a more open society than that. Um, So that response really genuinely did surprise me. I had lived there for, you know, a good few years and had become accustomed to how open people were in conversation and the scathing nature often of the journalism. So the fact that a book that said what had already been in many of the newspapers in great detail for years should then be considered to be too hot to handle by booksellers I did find that surprising but uh someone said to me what you've done is you've joined up all the dots and joining up the dots has made the material much much more powerful and much more you know damaging to the regime and I think that's what books do they they put it all in context and you're reading things that you already knew if you followed the newspapers or the news And suddenly they just have that much more impact. Uh, And as a reader, I understand that because I have that response to books as well.
1: Yes, that is quite surprising because one of my understandings, and perhaps it's a naive understanding of of at least the the, the way that Kenyan society works and uh, let's say the various corruption issues that they have is that one thing that they don't necessarily have a problem with that couldn't be said about some perhaps peer countries is that they have a very very vibrant civil society and that's almost the jewel in the crown of of, of Kenya and perhaps the Kenyan anti-corruption struggle is that that's one thing that they've got so so in in, in that sense is that a misnomer if I misunderstood that or do you think it was just this specific case?
0: I think Kenya's a less open place than it used to be um, and that's partly been, if you look at the newspapers, the Daily Nation, which was the go-to newspaper and part of the Aga Khan's empire, was a very brave newspaper during the Moy years. And it no longer is. And they've lo- lost some really fine journalists, very good columnists, very strong columnists. They've also lost, biggest tragedy was to see Gardo, the, the great um, uh, tanzanian cartoonist uh leaving the nation i mean that that was a, a day of mourning and a day of weeping for for anyone who who enjoys journal, you know journalism in kenya I, and his loss the fact that he 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 was shown the door that was astonishing to me and i think it just signaled the the end of the nation as a as a, a feisty a media voice uh, and and you know then they're, they're not the only ones who are watching what they say i i think the the space for discussion in kenya has actually got smaller not uh, not wider um and and that sort of may seem a bit anomalous because at the same time you've got social media opening up but but the the standard media itself i i think is quite quite badly constrained and i think there are also there are some hot topics that people just don't want to talk about i remember walking around my local park in london with a very young extremely articulate motivated ambitious kenyan journalist and uh, he was saying how f- fascinating he found the whole kind of the ethnic contest in kenya the way in which kenyans are sort of obsessed with their own ethnic identity and how how it's always a factor in every election and the ethnic alliances that form and the stereotypes that have gone along with those identities many of which were sort of solidified during colonialism and i sort of said you've got such interesting views about all of this Surely you should write a book. And he said, there is no way I would touch that subject with a barge pole. You know, I am never going to write that book. But, uh, you know, that's the day I start having problems with uh, with the authorities. And he is still working in in Kenya. He's doing interesting work, but he he knows what to avoid. And I I think that's true of a lot of um, Kenyan intellectuals is they know what areas not to stray into and my license as an outsider was that I could stray into those areas and then be you know be be slammed down upon but it allowed everyone else to have a bit of a discussion on the subject.
1: Yeah so so I suppose that I was just I was just about to say you know do you you find it I suppose easier as somewhat of an outsider to to touch the areas that perhaps people are slightly more sensitive of for for genuine reasons of you know it's is, is where they w- want to live for example so they don't they they, they might not want the the, the pressures and h- how do you approach it as an outsider and you know h- how do you approach you know certain sensitivities that there might be or you know ha- how how does how does it work I suppose is the question as as someone you know reporting on lots of different countries as an outsider what, what what's your process of doing that such that you can take sensitivities in, into account but also you know report genuinely on what you see and the problems that you see
0: yeah well it's difficult. <laughs> That's all I would say. I mean, it's also difficult because I'm aiming at various audiences. I I don't only write with an African audience in mind. I'm also trying to write books that I hope somebody who doesn't know Africa and may never even go there uh, would be able to read with pleasure and insight and understanding. And it's very difficult to sort of hit the African audience and be aware of their sensitivities and their irritations because it is obviously often quite irritating to read an outsider writing with authority and criti- and and critically about your own society when you know damn well that she hasn't you know been brought up in those con- conditions so I'm trying to sort of write for that audience and not ruffle too many feathers but I'm also trying to write for an audience that that may never go to kenya and needs to have the, the basics explained to it, including colonial history, which in Britain we're really poorly, poorly educated about. You know, I didn't learn about that at school or at university. So I've had to educate myself about that for every country I've worked in in Africa. And it's that's a very broad um, panoply of audiences that you're you're trying to please. And of course, inevitably you irritate and offend considerable parts of that audience you know just occasionally you'll you'll hear something very nice said you know I I think for me the most rewarding thing is when I'll see you know an Eritrean in the diaspora or or a Kenyan sometimes younger people will write to me and they'll say I've had this from Eritreans a lot and they'll say thank you for your book I now understand the conversations I used to eavesdrop on at home between my grandparents and my parents. I never really used to understand what they were talking about. And your book made that comprehensible to me. And now I understand what they were talking about. Those are very rewarding emails to receive. And similarly, you know, with Kenyans, I'll I'll sometimes get someone writing to me. And I think that the giveaway with a lot of these messages is they tend to always be private. They come via my, my website. There's a facility to write to me privately or people will find out what my email address is. And they'll say, Thank you for, you know, telling it like it is and describing a society I recognise. And I think when I get that kind of message, I think, OK, then I did good work. Because if somebody from that society who's grown up in it feels that I got it right, then that's fantastic. So so those are wonderful, uh, wonderful emails to receive.
1: And so you, you're not just critical of you know critical of societies you're also sort of, sort of more broadly critical I think of let's say the international community particularly in well no in, in fact in, in in many of many of your books but I, again I'm, I suppose I'm thinking about Kenya but I think it could work I mean certainly with with regards to Rwanda as well which I do want to get onto more, more substantially but particularly about around the approach somewhat around the approach of donors and I suppose the extent the slight extent to which in Kenya, at least, they seem to have slightly gained, especially in the time that you're writing about, slightly gained the donor system, if you will. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate ever so uh, on that.
0: To me, there are a lot of analogies between the, the story I wrote about Kenya and my latest book about Rwanda, because in both, I ended up being very, very critical of, do- of the donors, of Western donors, including the IMF and the World Bank. I used to have a lot more dealings with World Bank and the IMF than a lot of journalists who work in Africa because I was a Financial Times Africa correspondent. And so we were interested in structural adjustment facilities and role, uh, and, and loans uh, and budget deficits and a lot of issues that, you know, your average Africa correspondent for the New York Times or the Guardian would never normally focus on. So I did take more of an interest and I used to meet the IMF and the world guy in town and get to know the Bank of Kenya governor, central governor, and have those kind of discussions. Um, And I felt it was part of you know, getting to know the place; those were important meetings. But it also, I think, it has left me over the years extremely critical about donor engagement with a lot of these African countries. And I, I think, I saw the same syndrome in Kenya and in Rwanda recently, which is a real desire, a need, a, a pressing need to uh, get the money out of the door, as they say. That that what you realise um, as you you cover donor donor nations and the engagement with Africa is that um is, is is they need to show that they've spent the money, you know, that and, and that's a real problem. People think that often that uh, raising the money, you know, getting the aid budget in the UK or or the US or France, it's a problem. That's not the problem. The problem is how do you spend the money and how can you justify spending the money? And and one of the points obviously in Kenya was how on earth can you justify a large engagement with a country which is ripping off its own people in terms of these military procurement scandals that were the Anglo leasing scam. Uh, You know, uh, you've got key ministers. And in the end, John Githonga was saying the president himself is signing off on this stuff. So key ministers who are overseeing the, the theft of, of sort of hundreds of millions of dollars worth in money from the Treasury and, and you as a donor are then paying for schools to run, for all sorts of health benefits to be paid. So you're pouring money into this government whose ministers are are happily looting it. And that becomes a a really difficult thing to justify. And I felt by the end of the the It's Our Turn to Eat that um, it was was absolutely unjustifiable. And I partly felt very very strongly on that because I was often talking to to young Kenyans who knew what was going on. And their message to me would be, please ask your governments, ask the donors to stop lending um, and stop giving money to our governments, because um, it is not helping, you are helping to keep in power these deeply corrupt um, governments, Uh, you are propping them up, and you are being seen to prop them up. So it, it validates them, it helps them then win elections, which, by the way, they also tend to try and rig with your you know tacit approval and i had heard that had that conversation enough times to take it pretty seriously and i think um you know with rwanda what you're seeing is a different um a series of issues but it's very similar which is that uh, we need the donor community needs to be needed and in rwanda it needs to um it it regards uh, rwanda as a a donor darling, a, a model of development. Uh, it sees all sorts of um, uh, boxes being ticked on the s- sustainable development goals. Uh, it needs to be able to demonstrate that there has been a success for foreign aid somewhere in Africa. Um, there used to be a series of countries that were routinely cited as success stories. You know, one was Ethiopia, the other was Uganda. Then there was Ken- uh, uh, Rwanda. So Ethiopia now has had the most dreadful civil wars. That's rather undermined that whole notion that Ethiopia was a donor darling. Uganda was seeing it becoming increasingly unaccountable. Uh, every election is more violent than the last. It's ever clearer that Museveni uh, either doesn't want to leave or is going to personally appoint his successor, um, and it may be someone from his family. And then in with Kagame, you've got uh, someone who's benefiting from donor aid, but who is destabilizing the entire region through repeated military intervention, covert military intervention so it, it seems to me you've got the same scenario which is a bunch of donors who are supporting an undemocratic unaccountable uh, repressive in- incredibly repressive government because um they perform well on the development indices and that's very important to donor nations um and i i can't help but see the parallels between kenya on corruption and rwanda or security and human rights and the way in which donors have wanted in both cases to put their hands over their eyes, hold their nose and keep doling out the money. And as a taxpayer, because at the end of the day, you know, it's my tax money that goes into donor budgets. I'm extremely unhappy about that. And I really would like to see some kind of feisty, muscular discussion between the donors and Rwanda, just as I would have liked to see that muscular discussion taking place with Kenya at the time of the John Githongos, you know, when he was there and the Anglo leasing scandal was, was emerging. Uh, because I, I, I just don't see the current engagement and this sort of tacit um, well, we know what's going on, but we're not gonna say anything in public and the worst you'll get will be a, a sort of private scolding that will never be revealed to the press. That's just not working and it's discrediting the entire relationship um, it really discredits the role of foreign aid. And and I find it impossible now when I speak to people uh, who, you know, if they ever ask me what you think of foreign aid, I just sort of say, I'm sorry, I'm not a supporter. <laughs> you know, that old, um, w- what was that old um, shtick, which was... Um, Foreign aid is poor people in rich countries sending money to rich people in poor countries. I I think that really summarizes the the reality of aid. And uh, I have a lot of I've had a lot of friends who've worked in the development business, uh, whether in, in, in the sort of NGO side of things or whether they've been working for DFID or USAID, um, and uh, I've I've seen them become pretty disillusioned, and I've become ever more more critical of what it is that they do. I I just don't I I just don't think it stands up to scrutiny.
1: So so what's the solution there? I, I mean you know just completely completely cut off. Uh, all all avenues of foreign aid and if you do that is there is there I suppose a worry or a danger that that gap gets filled in by malign actors or more malign whatever it might be by 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 other uh, other actors or other countries attempting to create chaos or destabilize places or create different create different blocks of support I mean say so, say so I you know you know yeah. what's the what's what, what would be the consequences I suppose of just cutting off foreign aid
0: well, I think, obviously, when we're talking about these things, we're tending to talk about non-humanitarian aid. Uh, I think most of us accept that if there's a humanitarian crisis, you know, which we see at regular intervals, you do have to um, pay out the money and you have to do it fast. But when you're talking about development aid, long-term development aid, I think there, there are all sorts of issues about accountability and monitoring. I think uh, monitoring is never as good as it as it should be. I, I'm also um, a great supporter of um, conditionality, which is not really supposed to be fashionable anymore. You know, because the old idea with direct budgetary support was that you handed over the money and and then you allowed the government, an empowered government, to make its own choices, and that was um, treating them as responsible adults. I increasingly feel that there's been so many occasions in which we've seen that system being abused. That um, if it's your money and you're handing it over, you should apply conditionalities and keep monitoring really carefully. Like, I thought it's extremely bizarre and alarming that the British government paid uh, Rwanda £140 million, I think it was, up front before a single asylum seeker had been processed under the recent agreement. And you kind of think, where do you think that money is going to end up being spent? You know, you haven't had a single asylum seeker who has yet been transported to Rwanda so where do you think that money will go and at the same time as you're paying over paying out that 140 million uh, pounds worth you've got the m23 rebel movement rampaging across eastern congo do you not think that there might be some leakage there <laughs> that should concern you um i think my my main feeling is i i really feel uh, opportunities are missed to have feisty engagement uh, and one of the, the heroes of my Kenya book, It's Our Turn to Eat, is Edward Clay, and uh, uh, now Sir Edward uh, Clay, who um, repeatedly gave very feisty speeches uh, against corruption, highlighting what was happening, the nuts and bolts of the Anglo leasing scandal, because his um, the people he was working with, um, uh, who were working under him at the British Embassy were investigating Anglo leasing. So he had the, the, the information and he kept, Um, telling the Kenyan government and the Kenyan presidency that this was not acceptable. And he would do so in public. And this, it seems to me, is absolutely key. You need to have ambassadors who will make these statements in public uh, because um, in the country in which they work at the risk of being snubbed you know denounced and you know expelled or non-accredited because what what that allows is the local press the Kenyan press or the Rwandan press to cover their press conferences to write articles in newspapers that have often been nobbled and neutered Uh, they have to cover those events and it, it gives uh, local journalists um, the courage um, and the the necessary fuel to stand up to their own bosses, their editors, and the editors to stand up to their owners. So uh, it's this sort of discreet diplomacy that is incredibly damaging and unhelpful. So I'm in favour of feisty diplomacy on the ground. I'm in favour of a feisty relationship back at home with Rwanda. The fact that you have had intelligence agents from Rwanda fanning out across the world, and they've been doing this in the UK, but they've also done this in France, in Belgium, in Sweden, in other countries, uh, you know, and I'm sure it's been the same in the States, uh, across Africa, South Africa, Kenya, Mozambique, Uganda, um, and they are tracking down, monitoring, surveilling, and eventually, in the most extreme cases, killing members of the Rwandan diaspora. And and that these embassies that are coordinating um, these agents and their operations are not being closed down. I find that absolutely astonishing. I mean, the the intelligence agencies of the host nations know what's going on. So do the police forces, they've been told. And yet, you know, the Rwandan embassy in London remained open after four people on British soil, for Rwandan distance were warned by the Metropolitan Police that their lives were in danger. The the Rwandan embassy in France remains open. The the, the Rwandan embassy here in Belgium, which has just made sure that I can't stage an event and talk to people about my book. Uh, by ringing uh, the restaurant that was supposed to be holding the venue, you know, and threatening them and making sure that survivors groups here in the diaspora also rang the restaurant. Why is that still open? You know, why why haven't those diplomats been upbraided? Why haven't they been told that if they continue to behave like that, they will be um, shown the door? So I think there's an awful lot that Western countries and governments can do. And they're just not doing it because, um, you know, it's awkward. It's embarrassing. These aren't conversations people like having. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, you, you should be having those conversations and you should be making those statements in public.
1: Say- We haven't had much of a chance to talk about "Do Not Disturb," and I I wanted to ask you about it. I mean, you've hinted—not more than hinted—at it about what it what it's about and uh, about Rwanda more broadly. So I was hoping if you could, you know, summarise it and perhaps, you know, within that, some of the 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 active kickback that you're getting from it, as you suggested. You know, just today, you know, having a having a, a speaking engagement cancelled or postponed or moved because of because of you know active efforts by um by others to to prevent this happening
0: yeah um it was um triggered uh do not disturb was triggered by the uh assassination in south africa in a hotel room of patrick karagaya who was the former head of external intelligence and one of Kagame's school chums. I mean, they've known each other since they were kids and they became rebels in Uganda together. And then together along with others, they 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 set up the uh, Rwandan patriotic um, front secretly uh, within the Ugandan uh, military uh, inside Uganda before invading Rwanda and eventually winning control. I was just interested Patrick Karagaya was someone I had met, much as I had met John Gathongo through my work, Patrick Karagai used to like hanging out with journalists. I think I met him when I went to interview Kagame one time. And then I met him a couple more times when he was becoming more and more disillusioned and bitter about the turn that things were taking in Rwanda, where he saw that Kagame was more and more interested in one-man rule and power sharing. Um, you know, Kagame, of course, a member of the Tutsi minority. Uh, originally, the, the government in Rwanda was all about ethnic reconciliation between the Tutsi minority and the Hutu majority, and there were plenty of Hutu Hutu ministers. But one by one, um, they ended up um, fleeing the country. One of the, the most tori- notorious one was um, Seth Sendashonga, who was uh, assassinated in exile in uh, 1998 in Nairobi. And um, you'd, what you just saw with Rwanda was more and more key members of the... Um, of the RPF um falling out with Kagame you know the head of his former armed forces general Kayumba Nyamwasa Patrick Karagaya before him and um his former chef de cabinet his former procure um attorney general and all of them members of that tutsi elite leaving the country because they felt they were in danger you know they they felt they were in danger their lives were on the line setting up an opposition party Uh, abroad and denouncing Kagame as a dictator. And I think what what I found fascinating is there was this international operation to to, um, home in on those those guys and silence them. And it was being conducted by the Rwandan embassies abroad and was known, generally known to the intelligence uh, services in those countries but nothing was said publicly. And so I used um, Patrick Karagaya's assassination in in, uh, the hotel room at the Michelangelo to really to talk about that. And also to talk about my own journey because I was somebody who'd gone from being very optimistic about the RPF and from thinking, having seen the massacres up close in 1994 when I went into Rwanda with French troops covering that that deployment by French troops and seeing all these very obvious signs of uh, mass killings all around the country Uh, and thinking here's a movement that's that's putting an end to that Um, and it's talking the language of ethnic reconciliation. And then just becoming, I became more and more disillusioned uh, with what was going on and I saw people like Patrick Karagaya, like General de Singwa, m- these many other players jumping ship and fleeing. And you sort of think this aspect of things isn't really being covered. We're still just seeing coverage, which is talking about how neat and clean and tidy Rwanda is and what an astonishingly disciplined, articulate and forceful and dynamic President Paul Kagame is. And this is not the, the whole story. So that was why I decided to write Do Not Disturb." Um, It actually came out two years ago, and what I've been promoting now recently is the French translation. And that's been a very interesting experience because, of course, it means there's a whole new bunch of readers who are now accessing what I said in Do Not Disturb. And these are Francophone readers in France and Belgium, obviously, and Switzerland, but mostly and above all, these are Francophone readers in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, and in Burundi and in Rwanda, because there's still a large number of the population um, that speaks mainly French in Rwanda. And that's been a really fascinating experience for me. I was in Congo five days ago. And there there was such, there's so much frustration in Congo, uh, exasperation at the way in which There's this M23 movement that is funded and supported by Rwanda, which is just laying waste to Eastern Congo. And they feel so hard done by and they feel so ignored by the international community that obviously my book's very welcome because I'm being critical of Paul Kagame. And they're sort of going, oh, thank God, at least some journalists are talking about what's going on. So it was a very interesting discussion to have and an interesting place to be right now.
1: And in the book, and I think in lots of coverage of the book, I don't know, what, what, what one of the things that just strikes me, or perhaps, and that's come out in this conversation, I think, is the, the extent to which you... I mean, I think you, forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but strongly believe that Paul Kagame gets quite an easy ride in the international community, let's say. And perhaps because of, or stemming from the, the genocide, and um, there's, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase the Tony Blair quote, but, you know, t- Tony Blair suggests that, you know, be- because of the actions in that particular time, and that particularly awful time in 1990, in the 90s, that there's an amount of, leeway that someone should get for that action and my, my understanding is that well not, you know not wanting to put words in your mouth but you know that that that's sort of closing your eyes to various very very uncomfortable realities about the situation and um, well, so yeah, yeah I was wanting to talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, definitely. I mean, I think the genocide card has been played ruthlessly by Kigali um, whenever uh, Kagame is criticised. I mean, that's what they they take out the genocide card and they say, how dare you criticise us? Where were you? You know, the UN pulled out its troops when the massacres began. Where were you? Um, I mean, Kagame will literally say that. And, and it just doesn't wash. I mean, firstly, there's a whole question about you know uh, what his own RPF movement was up to before the genocide, as it was invading the country from the north and the massacres that we are increasingly hearing about that were committed by his troops in northern uh, Rwanda. Then there's the whole issue of who brought down the plane that triggered the event. Uh, the the mass the genocide the mass killings were triggered after all by the bringing down of the plane. Uh, and I've certainly interviewed. Four or five, sort of quite high people who were quite high up in the RPF, who said, "Well, actually, it was the RPF that brought down the the plane. They may not have realised that it was going to trigger a genocide, but they 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 wanted to end the war, uh, and so they they fired the missile." Um, I don't think the that, you know the French uh, investigation has been closed, so I'm not sure that we're ever going to really hear all the evidence. But um, there's certainly um, uh, a lot of people on the uh, RPF side of things who are saying we were responsible for that. Uh, and then the the other question, of course, is you know, how long do you keep playing the genocide card when your your own forces in the last you know couple of decades have been laying waste. Um, to Eastern Congo. We know from the UN mapping report that was published in 2010 um, that, you know, uh, rebel forces supported by Rwandan troops uh, were responsible for 617 separate atrocities and massacres inside Congo as they hunted down the Hutu civilians who had fled into Congo. And people think that hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Uh, We also know, thanks to Robert Gassoni, that before that whole episode that i'm describing uh, there had been in but he was an american investigator who talked about at least 35,000 people being killed uh, inside rwanda as the rpf was um, strengthening its hold on the country so kagame's got an n- enormous amount to answer for and should by rights you know face trial in front of an international court so when when i hear people like um blair or clinton or bill gates sort of enthusing about him you just sort of think you you need to do a bit more homework or just read what it already exists I'm, I'm not the first person to talk about these things they've been book after book report after report and um, you know if you're going to look at the the country and, and engage with it as apparently Blair Clinton and Gates are then you really need to do a bit more homework
1: And, of course, the current British government. Uh, Yes,
0: well, uh, I I mean, that's extraordinarily naive um, and cynical. I I mean, that's an extraordinary policy on so many fronts. There are reasons to reject it as, you know, a incompetent, counterproductive, just on its own terms. I mean, if anything, we've seen, uh, you know, migrant numbers have been soaring since it was announced by Priti Patel last year. But also just the sheer bizarre inappropriateness of sending asylum seekers who are fleeing political pers- persecution in many cases to one of the smallest and most highly populated countries in Africa, one of the poorest as well, which has got its own terrible human rights record and a very bad record in terms of what happens with um, with refugees. I mean, we know from the former British ambassador who was based in Kigali, and she made the point when she was asked, you know, we know this from the, the documents that were revealed in court, that she was asked, what about using Rwanda as a place to send asylum seekers to? And she said, well, in the past, you know, the Rwandan government has allowed the and um, uh, rebel movements to to recruit refugees as rebels to go and fight in Congo. So the British government needs to be aware of that. And the other point she made, which was absolutely correct, was that if we sign a deal with Rwanda on asylum seekers, it's going to make it uh, impossible to to express any concerns about its human rights records in future. And that's exactly what has happened, because the the British government used to be quite vocal about highlighting its concerns uh, about detention, arbitrary detention, arbitrary disappearances, torture in prison, the the record of, um, uh, you know, the way in which journalists are being arrested and and silenced. And it was very outspoken at, um, uh, at the United Nations on those topics. And we haven't heard a word of criticism since. And certainly Britain is not amongst many countries that are calling on Paul Kagame to stop supporting and arming the M23, which is active in Eastern Congo at the moment. So, um, we have silenced ourselves for incredibly cynical self-interest.
1: So the, the I, I, you know, the, the, the final thing I wanted to ask you actually was 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 much broader, and you you've both done it d- during this conversation, but also hinted at you, you think that it should be the uh, I, I suppose should be a more a broad approach, which is you know pretty open, honest, robust, fiery exchanges and conversations about where people and governments are falling short are, are on every side. And that sort of strikes me as, I suppose, the importance, if you will, of journalism more broadly in holding power to account. And a lot of your stories, are, a, a lot of your books are about the way in which power manifests. So, And, you know, the fact that you get such pickback from, a, a, and threats from, from the people that you hold to to account suggests that this is what that this is the role of journalism in this whole stew of perhaps anti-corruption or just more broadly holding power to account. So I was wondering if you could, I suppose as an end point, just talk us through what you think the role of journalism is, your job as a journalist is, or as a writer of books is on this. What where where do you what what do you think yet the your your role is or more broadly the role of journalists?
0: Okay, um before I answer that I just want to wait one po- more point about aid and and being feisty which is that quite often when I um will criticize British policy or French policy or American policy either regarding a country like Kenya or Rwanda you'll get someone saying but what you know but cut you know if you cut off the aid it just hurts the poorest of the poor and that's the standard response and I what I always say is there are so many steps before you get to, to cutting aid. There are just so many steps that you can take. And one is just to even hint that you might do it. And the other is to say that you're looking at it. You know, The other is then to have the feisty press conference with the ambassador. Uh, and there are so many steps that can be taken before you get to cutting aid. Um, and so people simplify because they don't want to do that. You know, So they present the, the, the extreme end of the process, but well before you get to that end. There, there are signals that can be sent out. And what, what really appalls me is that is that the government's uh, concern, the Western donors don't bother to send out those signals. And the, the signal they do send out is complete complacency and tolerance and indulgence. And that's not helpful to anybody. So what's the role of journalism generally? Yeah, I think, you know, our role is to Uh, is to to set the context. And I think that was something I did usefully in Kenya, which was to join up the dots of what was quite a complicated corruption scandal, simplify it, explain it, explain how much money was involved, explain how that could have benefited Kenyans had it been properly spent, and then to explore the factors behind it. So you, you are simplifying And you are making people feel angry because suddenly they are grasping and understanding something for the first time. Uh, And it is, yeah, it is not to then devise policy. And I think often I get frustrated because I am asked questions that would be appropriate if I was the minister for foreign affairs or, 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 you know, if I was a sort of presidential aide. As a journalist, you are constantly criticising and complaining, and it isn't necessarily your job to offer solutions. I didn't study international relations at university and learn how to become a politician. Um, I studied um, social and political <laughs> philosophy, and and um, and see my role as as uh, pointing out some obvious facts which are so often glossed over. But but yeah, people shouldn't expect journalists to provide the answer because the very the very principle of identifying the problem is already useful.
1: That's that's really interesting because. Um, it, it, yeah, I suppose there's always a the, the, the immediate follow up question is what can we do about it? But is, your, your position is I'm laying out the, the, the I'm laying out the thing as an interested observer of what I've seen. And it's now up to other people uh, as a part of the ecosystem, let's say, anti-corruption ecosystem or wider governance ecosystem to then use this information to think more fruitfully about how we can. Do things more effectively be it in donor aid be it in particular governance regimes
0: yeah it, exactly i mean often you know i will end up addressing uh, audiences of people who work in development or ngos and i think you know they think about these issues all the time uh but sometimes not with quite enough honesty and they sort of want to know what you know how to disperse their aid more effectively and i sort of At a certain point, I have to say to them, this is your baby. This is your world. You know, I don't know how to do it. I have never run, you know, a development project. But you have and you will know what works and you will know what has unintended consequences. A lot of what I describe in my books is the unintended negative consequences of very well-intentioned plans and projects. and, And just the need to sort of see those problems coming down the line. It's it's what Shakespeare described as the primrose path, isn't it, It, of of good intentions. Um, So often uh, what you're writing about uh, are things that were launched, you know, for completely idealistic reasons um, and that have gone sour and have bitten, you know, the people who devised them. But it is helpful to point out that when they go sound, when they go wrong and to learn those lessons. And I think the other main thing I'd I'd, I'd like to say is the problem with Africa is not negative coverage by people like me. You know, sometimes people will say you're an Afro pessimist and you kind of think that's really not the issue of being Afro, uh, you know, optimist or Afro pessimist. I mean, firstly, that implies taking a position that I, I don't think I do. But the problem is sheer indifference and sheer ignorance. Um, If you look at the amount of writing in the national press or in non-fiction book form about Africa, it remains minute, absolutely minute. Uh, So it's ignorance and indifference that are the key problems. And that I know that I can in my own small way address. It's it's not about you know what stance we have and whether we're for or against aid. It's the fact that most people have incredibly high levels of complete ignorance about most key African stories and developments. And I you know that that's my aim is to try and address that.
1: Fewer better places to end, I think, than uh, than, than you know addressing addressing ignorance. Uh, you know my own and everybody's own, and uh, so so it just leaves to say, you know, th- thanks ever so much for for coming on and joining us, especially with as as in the middle of a um, of, of a. Of, of a tour a, a, a promotion tour which is ever so slightly um but ever
0: so slightly going wonky <laughs>
1: yeah ever so slightly up in the air let's say uh, but we re- i re- really really do appreciate it and uh, yeah so thanks ever so much
0: okay it was fun <laughs> thank um, you